The story of Noah. Most people remember it mainly as a children's story, found in cute picture books and heard in Sunday school lessons, maybe in a toy on the shelf somewhere. But this tragedy really took place. And widely overlooked is Jesus' stunning prophecy that the final days of planet Earth would be, quote, just as it was in the days of Noah. Now, what does that mean for you and me? You'll find out as you join us next for The Land and the Book. Hey, welcome to the one-hour program that takes you right into the heart of the Middle East. Our guide is Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. He and I are fighting the last touches of jet lag. Charlie's voice is still a little bit hoarse, having just recently returned from Israel. Charlie, is your sleep clock totally reset? I was up at 3.30 this morning, John, so no. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. I confess the same. Well, maybe you have wondered what it would be like to learn Hebrew. Would you love to explore the Bible in one of its original languages or to be able to better communicate when you visit Israel? Well, to help you get started, our friends at Life in Messiah invite you to attend a free introductory Hebrew lesson with experienced Hebrew teacher Melissa Briggs. This group lesson over Zoom is suitable both for those interested in biblical Hebrew and for those interested in modern Hebrew. Melissa is passionate about making the riches of the Hebrew language accessible to everyone. To sign up for this free lesson, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. Be sure to sign up today and begin your journey of learning Hebrew. And now our look at current events. Rumors continue to swirl about Israel preparing to attack Iran's nuclear facilities. Could an attack be imminent, or is this just an attempt by the U.S. and Israel to sort of pressure Iran into halting their enrichment of uranium? Yeah, right now, John, it looks like an attack is not imminent, but that doesn't mean it couldn't happen in the very near future. Israel continues to prepare for an attack, and they believe they could carry out a preemptive strike. There are, however, some uncertainties that make launching that attack rather risky. First, it's uncertain how much damage they could do to Iran's nuclear program. Could they destroy the underground facility at Fordo, or is it too deep to be hit? If Israel attacks but isn't able to destroy all Iran's nuclear facilities, well, then it's almost certain Iran would respond by racing ahead with plans to develop nuclear weapons. Second, it's uncertain how severe the military conflict would be that would follow. Iran, Hezbollah, and Hamas would certainly respond by launching their own attacks against Israel, which could force Israel to fight a three-front war. Hmm. Would the U.S. come to their aid during such a conflict, or would Israel be expected to fight that war all alone? And the third uncertainty is whether the U.S. would give approval for Israel to launch an attack if negotiations with Iran are underway, which apparently they are right now. There are reports that the U.S. has been quietly discussing another interim nuclear deal with Iran. And while Israel has said it would not be bound by any new agreement, they would also want to be careful not to harm their relationship with the U.S. by uh, appearing to deliberately sabotage such negotiations. Netanyahu has reportedly said that Israel can live with the mini-deal now being discussed between the U.S. and Iran. So what should we be watching for? Well, watch to see if Israel goes quiet about preparations for an attack or If there's a sudden flurry of visits to Israel by administration officials or high-ranking U.S. military personnel, or if the negotiations between the U.S. and Iran fizzle out without reaching an agreement. One thing we know from history is that Israel will not allow Iran to cross the nuclear threshold, even if they have to act alone. Seems to me, Charlie, and you're the better informed one here, that with Netanyahu in power, uh, the likelihood of something actually happening or being able to be carried out is just a little bit higher than if it were somebody else. Do you agree or disagree? 
I agree. I, I think uh, all sides in Israel recognize that they can't have a nuclear Iran. But uh, Netanyahu tends to be the more experienced and certainly the more aggressive as opposed to the uh, the more liberal elements within the Israeli government that are currently out of power. Story number two, the U.S. is pushing for the normalization of relations between Israel and Saudi Arabia, something that Prime Minister Netanyahu said could change history. What exactly is being proposed? How much of an impact could it have on the Middle East? And my question, how likely is it that this will actually materialize? Uh, well, the proposal is for Saudi Arabia and Israel to normalize their relations, in essence, to have Saudi Arabia join the Abraham Accords with Israel. Uh, Saudi Arabia continues to say they won't normalize relations until Israel agrees to the formation of a Palestinian state. But there are hints that some creative ways to accomplish this are being proposed behind the scenes. And Netanyahu's current coalition partners would not support such a deal. So any agreement would require some of the opposition parties to vote with the government to approve an agreement. Now, to sweeten the deal for the Saudis, the U.S. is apparently proposing upgrading current relations with them and providing other support, including more U.S. military cooperation and possible approval for a civilian nuclear program for Saudi Arabia. The key advantages of, of a normalized relationship between Israel and the Saudis is the dominant role Saudi Arabia plays within the Arab world. You know, they control two of the holiest shrines in Islam, Mecca and Medina. Uh, they're by far one of the wealthiest Arab countries, providing financial support to many other Arab states. Israel and the U.S. believe Saudi Arabia's influence could tip the balance and lead most Arab nations into making peace with Israel. But this is far from a done deal. And the two biggest unknowns are the price Israel would be expected to pay mm. in exchange for normalized relations and the reaction of Iran and her allies to such a deal. That's Middle East expert Dr. Charlie Dyer working us through a set of stories here in current events on the land and the book. I'm John Geiger, and you know, one of the more radical proposals, Charlie, coming out of an Israeli-Saudi peace initiative could be the formation of the Hashemite Kingdom of Palestine. What would this involve, and is such a reality even possible? You know, this idea, John, is so bizarre, it seems like it just has no basis in reality, and yet it first appeared in a Saudi publication by someone with connections to the Saudi royal family, which is why it's so intriguing. Basically, it's a way to break the current logjam in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Israel can't accept the existence of an independent state of Palestine that could potentially fall into the hands of Hamas or other Islamic radicals. And Israel's demand that any possible state be demilitarized, with Israel controlling the border along the Jordan River, well, that's unacceptable to the Palestinians. Now, this new proposal attempts to finesse all of that by establishing the Hashemite Kingdom of Palestine. In essence, the current Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan would be expanded to include the West Bank and Gaza Strip. The exact boundaries would need to be negotiated, but it would allow for one Palestinian state that would in many ways be similar to the state of Jordan from 1948 till 1967. It would provide political and economic stability for the Palestinians in a way that would also guard Israel's security. It would eliminate the so-called Arab right of return to Israel, and Palestinian refugees would simply be granted citizenship into this new state. Now, is this idea even possible? Well, that's the million-dollar question. Would Israel accept it? Would the Palestinians accept it? Would Jordan accept it? Would other Arab countries accept it? And could this connect to the Bible's description of an end-time peace agreement that would appear to usher in the Antichrist? Well, right now, no one knows the answers to any of those questions, but it's certainly an intriguing option. Hmm. 
Well, an Israeli device that can measure pain levels during surgery has been approved by the FDA. Tell us about this latest innovation from Amazing Israel. Yeah, you know, imagine you're a baby or an adult that's under anesthesia, but unable to communicate with the doctors. How do you let the healthcare professionals know your level of pain or the amount of medication you need to control that pain? And that's where MediSense Biometrics comes in. This Israeli company has developed a device that can objectively quantify a patient's physiological pain response called noception to personalize pain management. Uh, using advanced artificial intelligence, the device monitors multiple parameters within the sympathetic nervous system to quantify a patient's own personal signature of pain. Uh, it then continuously tailors dosing to each patient's needs. Now, this can help doctors be sure the patient is receiving adequate pain medication while avoiding the excessive use of drugs, which ultimately results in improved patient safety and outcomes. And now that the device has been approved by the FDA, the company's preparing to market the system in the United States. Imagine, John, a device to help you remain pain-free during surgery while also guarding against the negative effects of over-medication. Now, that definitely sounds like still another positive development coming out of Amazing Israel. Charlie, we love the way you keep us informed on this current events segment, and we often hear from listeners saying, you know, what can we do to stay informed, stay on top of these issues? What are your recommended news sources, the things that you would go through and recommend to others, perhaps? Uh, top three sources for Israel in terms of technology like this, Israel 21C. Uh, they have just all sorts of uh, new devices, new uh, information coming out of Israel. Second would be the Times of Israel. They have a technology section that's worth going to and reading every so often. And then the third, Jerusalem Post. Uh, they also have a technology section and health section. Uh, and when you go there, you can find uh, all sorts of new things coming out. All right. Charlie, what about our podcast? A lot of people are unaware of the fact that we do have a podcast. Talk about its availability and its uh, potential for them. You know, it's amazing how many emails we get on that. Uh, people who aren't able to listen at the regular time on their radio station or aren't near a radio station can get the podcast, listen to the program, or listen to it over again at their convenience, at their time. It's a great way to listen to The Land and the Book. And you'll find that podcast at our website, thelandandthebook.org. That's thelandandthebook.org. Up next, the conversation as it was in the days of Noah. The fact that you and I may well be living in what Jesus described as, well, the beginning of the end times. Check it out coming up next here on Moody Radio's The Land and the Book. A rise in evil, a surge in immorality, a pandemic of godlessness. Can God's judgment on planet Earth be far away? The days in which we now live are strikingly similar to the days of Noah. How can we make sure our days count for eternity? Boy, tough questions, and we'll get right to them. But first, let's put our heads together and think creatively about simple ways that you and I can impact our Jewish friends with the love of Messiah. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul states, I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. You ever wonder, how does this apply to Jewish evangelism? Wes Tabor is with Life in Messiah. How does that apply, Wes? Hmm. Yeah, in verse 20, Paul says that he relates to the Jewish people, quote, as a Jew, end quote. 
That required no effort because Paul was Jewish. But he goes on to talk about identifying with both those under the law, the Jewish people observing the Mosaic Code and likely the rabbinic application of the law, and those not under the law. So on the practical level, in Acts, we see him relating very differently when speaking in a synagogue and when addressing idolaters on Mars Hill in Acts 17. In reaching Jewish people today, we need to understand their worldview, whether religious or secular, to make the gospel relatable. Okay, Wes, what would be an example of entering into their world? Give me an idea here. Okay, an easy example would be attending a life cycle event like a bris, a ritual circumcision, or a bat mitzvah. Holiday celebrations such as Passover, Purim, Hanukkah are great opportunities to build bridges. Connecting such events with their biblical roots can open the door for spiritual conversation. Okay, good ideas. Wes Tabor with Life in Messiah. Warnings from Bible prophecy about the coming global storm. That's where we're headed on this second segment of The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and I'd like you to meet Jeff Kinley. Jeff is a best-selling author and speaker whose mission is to empower people with God's truth helping them discern the times and to become influencers for Jesus Christ. He's the author of 40 books, including As It Was in the Days of Noah. Jeff speaks frequently at churches and conferences around the country and really around the world. His television show, Jeff Kinley Live, airs each week on hischannel.com. Jeff's Vintage Truth podcast is heard in more than 100 countries worldwide. He's also the co-host of the Prophecy Pros podcast. I want to know if there's a Prophecy Amateurs podcast. Jeff is a graduate of the University of Arkansas and Dallas Theological Seminary. He and his wife have three grown sons. Welcome to the land of the book, Jeff. Thank you, John. Great to be with you. In the introduction to your book, you write, you're about to discover how an old Sunday school story leaps forward in time, shedding light on today's generation and linking itself to yet another coming global judgment. How much do you think our disconnect from the Old Testament hampers our ability to see the imagery, the clear parallel uh, between Noah's day and our day. Well, I think it's critical that we look back in time because everything in the Word of God, as as Paul wrote to Timothy, all Scripture is inspired. We go back and we look at these old stories and we think, gosh, it was just there as a, you know, something to tell in Sunday school or something to relate at some point in our lives. But, you know, it's really for today as well because the lessons that we learn from them, especially when Jesus Christ says, hey, I want you guys to look back so that you can look forward and see where you are in time. So, yeah, Noah's story does uh, give us great perspective on where we are. What about the skeptic who says, uh, no arguing there's a coming judgment, but aren't you going a little overboard using words like imminent? I mean, couldn't previous generations have also made a similar claim? Well, certainly in some ways we could always look forward to the fact that one day there's going to be a reckoning for humanity, but at no time in human history have the convergences of prophetic signs be coming together like they are right now, particularly, John, with the formation of the nation of Israel in 1948. In fact, all of the future prophecies that we read about in Revelation are dependent upon Israel becoming a nation again. And look what just happened. 2,000 years and boom, here's Israel. So it really is kind of the uh, setting the prophetic clock forward when we uh, see the Israel's rebirth as a nation. Okay, so you mentioned Israel, and clearly that is significant. What about other additional biblical evidence that God's judgment is imminent? 
Yeah, I think there's several things that we look to right now. I think one of the things is it's just the moral decadence that is really blanketing our earth, uh, that, that pandemic godlessness that we spoke of earlier. Uh, we're seeing that happen right now. And what Christ said was, he said, in order to understand the future and the present, we have to look to the past. And when we kind of rewind the story back to Noah's day, John, what we find is a culture in chaos, uh, people that everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes. Uh, they were inventors of evil. Uh, the Bible says they had corrupted the earth uh, with their sin. And so I look at my day today, and I think, gosh, how are we doing the same thing? And I look at what's going on with transgenderism, with abortion, really with the war against sanity, common sense, decency, and God. Uh, one of the latest things I read about yesterday was this thing called transableism. Uh, where people are actually removing limbs of their body in order to identify as handicapped people, uh, severing their spinal cords, poking out their eyes. You know, we've just gone into a, a world of absolute spiritual insanity where we're living today. And so I look back at Noah's day. That's what was going on then in terms of just the decadence and depravity. So that's really a big sign that the moral really implosion, the moral devolution that we're experiencing right now. As it was in the days of Noah. That's today's conversation with our guest, Jeff Kinley. I'm John Geiger. This is The Land and the Book. Jeff, I see three groups of people that might pick up this book with three different responses. Group one, unsaved folks. They might think we're a little crazy. Group two, born-again Christians who are serious about their faith and will take this book to heart. But there's a third group I want you to address, and they are born again but they have kind of been lulled to sleep by the world, even taking on its values and views. How big is this group in the evangelical world today, if you had to guess? And what would you want to say to them? Well, I would say that it's probably most of the evangelical church today because we have been lulled to sleep uh, by culture because culture has sort of seeped in with its values, uh, with its, um, you know, the, the perspectives that the world has on different things like the Bible, on sexuality, on marriage, that type of thing. And I guess sometimes we need sort of a wake-up call. Someone needs to flip the lights on and say, hey, this is what's really going on. And fortunately, John, that's what the Bible does for us. In the words of Jesus in Matthew 24, uh, 37, he says, I want you to have a heads up on what's going to happen in the end times. And, you know, sometimes it's sort of a shock when that happens, uh, but it's almost like an intervention by God to his bride uh, to help her wake up. And so I think as people get into the book, they're going to go, wow, this is really resonating with what's going on in culture right now and what the Bible says is going to happen in the last days. That was my reaction as I went through the book. Wow, this really is happening. Well, what should the message of this book say to us about sharing Christ with our unsaved friends and loved ones? Well, this is the great thing is that, you know, it really is a message of hope because we have nothing to offer but hope as Christians. And I think one thing, John, as we look back at Noah's life and, and uh, his experience, I think that we see that Noah had a real rugged faith about him. We need that in today's culture. Yes. We need a rugged, raw, almost feral kind of faith that just says, look, I need courage, I need confidence to move through this life because there's so much challenge against Christianity and so much pushback. I think another thing is just the idea of, of preaching righteousness. Uh, in a day where righteousness is so downplayed. And that was one of the things that the Bible says, uh, and Peter says, he says that Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and really just prepare our hearts, make sure we're, we're building that ark, uh, so to speak, in our own lives, so that we make sure that we are taken care of as far as salvation goes. But I always say this, John, the darker the night, the brighter the light. Mm. And so it's going to be more, it's going to be more easy in some ways to shine the light of Christ, just being basic Christians, 
But as that light shines into a dark world, uh, we can expect some pushback, as I'm sure Noah experienced as well. Glad you're with us today on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. My guest, Jeff Kinley, whose mission is to help us discern the times. One of the ways he's done that is putting together this book as it was in the days of Noah. How else can believers live wisely in the light of approaching judgment so that our days do count for eternity? Yeah, I think the most critical thing we can do is to know what the Bible says, to get back to the Bible. You know, a lot of people have stopped bringing their Bibles to church. Some pastors don't even preach from the Bible so much anymore. And so what we need to do is get back to what God says, because obviously he's the creator. He's the one that sent the flood. He's the one that's sending the coming judgment and revelation. So we need to know what God says about life, about us. And the more we're acquainted with that, John, what it does is just deepens our roots in God. It makes us strong to be able to stand up, but also gives us that heads up on history and that those discerning glasses, if you will, to be able to see through all the fog and the darkness that's going on in the world today. So it really is kind of a, a critical intel. It's what Scripture gives us on these times we're living in. I love the end times chronology of 30 major events in the book. It's very clearly laid out. Uh, you can follow it. You know, a lot of us feel like, ah, oh, prophecies beyond me. I, you know, I'm not even going to get started. But you've made it pretty simple, and I find that appealing and wanted to say thank you. You're very welcome. I, well, I want to really put the cookies on the bottom shelf so that every believer feels like they can handle this uh, with accuracy and confidence. Yeah. Well, what would you say is the greatest struggle for believers today? I'm going to lay out two scenarios. Scenario A, we're a little shaky in our beliefs about a literal judgment from a literal God. Or B, it all seems so far away. We just can't get worked up over a coming judgment. Yeah, I'd say one thing is, is to look at how God fulfilled prophecy in the past. When you look at Noah's generation, uh, there were many prophecies about the, the judgment that came then. And, of course, it, it was fulfilled. We know Scripture is, is um, consistent. It's accurate. Uh, we expect all the future prophecies to be fulfilled literally as the past ones were. So God is really batting a thousand in that way. And then I would say, too, the second thing is just to simply look at what's going on in the world around you. Then go look at your Bible. And when you see the parallel and the mirror uh, generations uh, between what Scripture says is going to be like in the end times and what we're actually seeing happening right now, it really is kind of like a wow. Either the Bible gets really, really lucky, or it's this <laughs> amazing coincidence, or maybe it's written by God, and he's really trying to tell us, hey, this is what's coming. So make sure you're prepared and that you're helping others get prepared as well. Warnings from prophecy about the coming global storm. We're talking with Jeff Kinley here on The Land and the Book. I love the chapter, The Great Rescue. What do we need to know most? What what theme comes to your mind? What would you like us to, to carry away from that chapter? I think the beauty of it is just simply a divine romance. I mean, Jesus in John 14 told his disciples, if I go away, I'll prepare the Father's house, and one day I'll come back to you, and I'll snatch you up again as my precious bride and take you to the Father's house. And that's the great thing about this doctrine we call the rapture, is that it is really a story of Christ coming to deliver us, as First Thess tells us, from the wrath that's coming. And the wrath there in context is speaking of the day of the Lord or the tribulation period. So, John, I believe that, that well, as we think towards the rapture, the Scripture calls it the blessed hope in Titus 2.13. It is our hope. It's the greatest looking forward to date uh, that we should have on our calendars. In fact, uh, one of the uh, famous uh, reformers once wrote, there's really only two days on the Christian's calendar. There's this day 
and then there's that day. Mm -hmm. And so that's the day of our wedding, our redemption, our fulfillment, our culmination of our salvation. So, Jeff, I want you to speak directly to a listener who's been following this conversation, and they're not feeling like a great day is coming. They're a little bit terrorized because maybe God is at work in their hearts, and they know they're not right with God. They've they've never been what Jesus uh, described as being born again. What are they supposed to do in response to all this? Speak directly to that listener who knows they're not right with God. Yeah, I think, number one, feeling that in your heart, knowing that in your mind is really the first step and understanding that we have a great need because we're great sinners. But fortunately, Christ is a great Savior. And when he paid the penalty for all of our sin on the cross, he did it because he loved us very, very deeply. And maybe now, maybe you're driving down the road right now and you see an exit up ahead and that's your exit. Take it, you know. And what Christ is saying here is this salvation offer is your exit. Uh, This is your exit to take, uh, to get off the road that you've been on, to get on the road with God again, and let Him change your life by simply believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and committing yourself to Him. And He will change your life. And it begins by changing our mind. Obviously, we have to unlearn a lot of things that are out there in the world, (laughs) but it begins a spiritual journey that really helps us grow in Him and love Him more. Jeff, would you pray a prayer right now that someone could kind of copy and pattern for themselves as they listen, something simple that would, that would bring them into this relationship? Absolutely. Something like, Lord Jesus, I need you. I confess to you that my sin has offended you and that I am in deep need of a Savior. I cast myself at your mercy and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ to save me, to forgive me, and to make me the kind of person that you want me to be. Amen. Amen. And if you'd like to talk to somebody right now, this very moment, and get your questions answered, you can always call 888-NEED-HIM and speak with a volunteer who's glad to talk with you. 888-NEED-HIM. Jeff, the number one thing you want us to do now in response to this book is what? It's simply look. Look up at God. Look around at your world. Look within and to share the hopeful message of Jesus Christ. Jeff Kinley has written as it was in the days of Noah. Sure appreciate your time. Thank you, John. My pleasure. And Charlie's back with some more Bible questions. I think you're going to love these here on The Land and the Book. listening to The Land and the Book and enjoying the program, I bet you've got a friend who would benefit too. Why don't you let them know where they can listen, how they can listen, and let them know about our podcast available at thelandandthebook.org. I'm John Geiger, our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Charlie, what's this next segment all about? Uh, this is a fun segment for the teacher and me. Uh, people write in with their questions, and uh, we have an opportunity to share what the Bible says about those particular questions, and they cover the waterfront, John. Okay. Well, here's a question. Have you ever wondered what it would take to learn Hebrew? And and would you love to explore the Bible in one of its original languages or to be able to better communicate when you visit Israel? But to help you get started, our friends at Life and Messiah invite you to attend a free introductory Hebrew lesson with experienced Hebrew teacher Melissa Briggs. This group lesson over Zoom is suitable both for those interested in biblical Hebrew and for those interested in modern Hebrew. Melissa is passionate about making the riches of the Hebrew language accessible to everyone. To sign up for this free lesson, all you have to do is visit lifeinmessiah.org, click on the Moody Radio logo, and sign up. Be sure to sign up today and begin your journey of learning Hebrew. 
All right, Bev gets the honors of first question out of the shoot today. She says, this week I heard a pastor teach on Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, and he referred to Jesus as a Palestinian peasant. Am I wrong to be concerned? I've also heard of Jesus being referred to as a Palestinian refugee when they traveled to Egypt, and someone was comparing him to modern-day refugees in regards to today's social justice issues. Your thoughts? Yeah, Bev, well, your instincts are correct. At its very minimum, this is historically anachronistic uh, when someone refers to Jesus as a Palestinian since the word was not in use until a century after the time of Jesus. It was Hadrian who tried to erase any Jewish presence from the land, and he changed the name of Jerusalem to Aelia Capitolina, and he changed the name of the land from Judea to Palestina after the Philistines. In actual fact, uh, the land was the land of Judea or Galilee or Samaria in Jesus' day. And Jesus was the Son of God, who was perceived by many as a Jewish teacher or rabbi. He was not a peasant in the way most would understand that word. Now, I think the confusion here comes from three sources. Some simply use the word Palestine because many Bible atlases mistakenly label the land as Palestine at the time of Christ. In addition, some teachers, in trying to find connections between customs in Jesus' day and customs of the past hundred years or so, have tried to make too much of a comparison between the lives of Palestinian peasants and the lives of first century Jews. And finally, I think there are some trying to subtly remove the connection between Jesus, the land of Israel, and the modern Jewish nation by trying to recast Jesus as a champion of the Palestinians in their current conflict with Israel. Now, I don't know what was motivating the pastor you heard, but I think it's important to remember that Jesus was Jewish and that the places he ministered in were called Judea, Galilee and Samaria, not Palestine. Larray says, somebody told me that only 20% of the Hebrews left Egypt during the Exodus. I've seen nothing in Scripture to indicate this. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think you're right to question it, Larray. Uh, there's absolutely no evidence, biblical or extra-biblical, suggesting that any Israelites remained in Egypt. You know, such a statement is pure speculation based on no objective facts, whatever. Uh, in fact, There's some reasons for rejecting the idea. Uh, First off, the plagues, including the killing of the firstborn. Well, after that, it's inconceivable that any Israelites would want to remain in Egypt. The land had been decimated, and any Israelites remaining would have been fearful of vengeance and retaliation by the Egyptians. Uh, Second, Exodus 12.37 says there were approximately 600,000 men, besides women and children, it says, who left Egypt that night. So a conservative estimate of the women and children I think that would take that total up to at least 2 million Israelites. If that represents just 20% of the total, as that individual suggested, that means there would have been around 10 million Israelites living in Egypt. Well, that's more than the entire Jewish population in Israel today. Third, Exodus 12:38 says that many other people went up with them. Now, that mixed multitude were non-Israelites who, for different reasons, wanted to associate with the Israelites at this time. So, The group leaving Egypt did include more than just Israelites, but I believe that all Israelites left Egypt at that time. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Our host, Dr. Charlie Dyer, is always open to answering your questions anytime. I'll share our email address later on. Let's get now to this next question. A listener says, I read a statement that said, the fact that the feasts of Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits all follow one another on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday is not just a coincidence, but is God's perfect timing. Since Jesus died on Friday, was in the tomb all day Saturday, and came back to life on Sunday. So do the Jews keep track of all these feasts? 
Might they have practiced them on Saturday and Sunday after they crucified the Lord? Finally, might these feasts coincide again in our lifetime since they follow a lunar calendar for celebrating? Well, I got to start by saying the three feasts identified in the Hebrew Bible are indeed correct. And Passover was the 14th day of the month. The Feast of Unleavened Bread began the 15th day of the month. And the Feast of Firstfruits, which was the offering of the first of the barley harvest, was then the day following the next Sabbath. Now, these did correspond in the year Jesus was crucified, which I believe was A.D. 33. But it's not a, a totally unusual event. It actually happens anytime Passover falls on a Friday. So uh, this century so far, uh, that's happened in 2001 and 2005 and 2008, and then again in 2021. Now, since the Jewish calendar is a lunar calendar with an extra month added in every few years to make it coincide with the solar calendar, the sequence will vary, but there will again be times when all these dates align. Here's a question from Barb. She says, I've been studying the Syrophoenician woman, and Jesus seems rather cruel in his interaction with her. She was desperate, and she's a believing Canaanite woman. He had healed other Gentiles, the centurion servant, the demoniac from across the river, the ten lepers, yet none of them was kind of put down as this woman was, called a dog. Can you explain why Jesus would sound so demeaning? Yeah, I think the best way to understand it is to view it in terms of the overall purpose for Jesus' first coming. Uh, Jesus actually says in Matthew 15's account of this, in his answer to the woman, he said, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. And though he had other encounters with Gentiles, they seemed to be indirect. You mentioned the centurion whose servant was healed. Uh, Well, the centurion seems to fall into the category of God-fearers. He'd actually helped in the financing of the synagogue in Capernaum. Uh, the healing of the Gergesene demoniac was really an encounter between Jesus and the legion of demons who just happened to be possessing that man. And the ten lepers apparently were a group of nine Jews and one Samaritan. Anyway, Jesus's point to the woman was that the primary focus of his ministry was to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now, you're correct in understanding the use of the word dog. That's not intended to refer to a pet the way we might refer to you know someone's pet dog today. Dogs were considered unclean and Though Jesus uses the uh, diminutive form of the word, meaning small dog, uh, his point is that she was outside the covenant community and therefore not the group to which he'd been sent. Her response, though, indicates she had great faith, and on the basis of that faith, Jesus granted her request. Now, one last point. Jesus' primary focus was to the Jewish people during his first coming, but he did minister to Gentiles. The feeding of the 4,000 was in a largely Gentile area. And in John 10, Jesus said, Other sheep I have which are not of this fold, referring to others besides the Jewish people. And finally then, following his resurrection, Jesus commanded the disciples now to go into all the world to deliver the message. That's when the focus turned from Israel toward all the earth. Dan says, I've read through Genesis many times, but I don't see any mention of sorrow or repentance on the part of Adam and Eve. Do you see any evidence of contrition on their part? Do you think they ever fully understood the devastation they brought to the rest of mankind? Yeah, and we don't see any direct evidence of contrition on their part, though I do think there is some indirect evidence. Following their sin, God clothed Adam and Eve with garments of animal skin. It says in Genesis 3.21. Now that suggests to me that God explained to them that someone had to die to cover their nakedness and atone for their sin. And then in Genesis 4.4, Abel brought an offering from the firstborn of his flock to the Lord, which God accepted. Now, that also suggests to me that God had explained to Adam and Eve and their children about the necessity of animal sacrifice. Now, again, that's indirect evidence, 
but it does lead me to believe that they did repent and understood that a sacrifice was needed to atone for their sin. Well, in Acts, we read of Saul, that was Paul before his conversion, his zealous persecution of Christians. In Philippians, Paul lists his credentials as a Jew, a Pharisee, and blameless adherence to the law. Coupled with his harsh persecution of Christians, you would think Paul would have been considered a superstar among the Pharisees. However, his name is never mentioned in the Gospels and conspicuously absent in any participation in the trial and death of Jesus. Why do you think this is so? I think this might be primarily due to Paul's relatively young age. When he's first introduced in Acts 7, uh, he's called a young man. And the word used actually has the idea of a man between the ages of 24 and 40. Uh, We might describe Saul as someone who was up and coming among the religious leaders. But in a society that associated age with wisdom, Saul was still not considered old enough to have assumed a position of strong leadership. He helped out by watching over the outer garments uh, of those who stoned Stephen. Well, we sure appreciate all the questions that have come in, and yours is welcome too. Send it to the land and the book at moody.edu. Love to get an email from you and hear how the program is impacting your life, connecting with you. You can reach us at the land and the book at moody.edu. Well, Charlie Dyer's devotional is a favorite with many. Stick around, you'll be glad you did here on the land and the book. Father's Day weekend upon us, maybe you wonder, what exactly does the scripture say about fathers? Well, there's an awful lot there. Charlie, I understand you've selected a particular psalm that has a unique focus here. I have. We're going to head to Psalm 68, looking at verses 5 and 6 on this Father's Day weekend. All right, that's coming right up. First, though, this thought from someone who has traveled to Israel and, and comes away deeply, deeply affected, wants to share this with you and me. Listen. My name is Janet McDonald from Frankfort, Indiana. We went to Israel back in 2008 with Moody Bible Institute, a trip that was truly life-changing for us. And in particular, I remember uh, coming up and, and seeing the wilderness, the vastness of the wilderness, and then thinking sometimes how easy it is for us to think back on the Israelites and think, oh, they were of little faith. They, they had the cloud and they had the pillar of fire, and why didn't they have more faith? and and how could they have gotten lost. But seeing the vastness and how it all looked the same, how easy it would have been for them, but knowing that God never forsake them, he was with them at all times, he loved them and brought them to his promised land. And just what assurance that gives us today to know how much he loves us just as he did them and that he will never forsake us. Father's Day weekend, it's here. And Charlie, how fitting that you're taking us to a Father's Day devotional in Psalm 68. Uh, Thanks, John. Yeah, this is indeed Father's Day weekend. And I want to start by telling you a little bit about my dad. Uh, His name also was Charlie. In fact, growing up, he was called Big Charlie and I was called Little Charlie. And there are a few senior saints in that area where I lived who still call me that. Now, dad's early life was a struggle. His mom died when he was just three years old. That was 1929, the year the stock market crashed and the U.S. headed into the Great Depression. Six years later, his dad died, leaving a nine-year-old boy to be raised by an older brother and a housekeeper on the family farm. Within a year, the farm went into foreclosure. 
That Charlie Dyer was adrift and hurting, forced to grow up early. The dark clouds of World War II soon enveloped the United States, and at 17, Charlie joined the Navy, living through the terror of a kamikaze attack on his ship during the battle for Okinawa. That Charlie Dyer was quiet, even somewhat distant. Today, we likely would have diagnosed him with PTSD. But back then, he was just like far too many other young men exposed to the horrors of war and just expected to do their duty. Then in the early 1970s, something changed. Charlie came to faith in Jesus while watching God work in the lives of others at our small local church. He started reading the Bible, and the focus of his life changed. He remembered little of his earthly father, but he found in God a true heavenly father he came to love. Psalm 68, verses 5 and 6 pictures what my dad discovered as he placed his trust in the Lord. A father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. God sets the lonely in families. He leads forth the prisoners with singing, but the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. When dad turned over his life to the Lord, that sun-scorched land he had experienced melted away. He discovered a heavenly father who truly cared for him, and he found himself in a new heavenly family who loved him. Many listening today can resonate with my dad. Your own earthly father might have been cold or even cruel or distant or absent. Some of you grew up in families where your father had died or perhaps just simply left. The sense of pain, loss, and loneliness, coupled with the sting of rejection and hurt, can make Father's Day seem like little more than a mockery of your life experience. But if that's the case, focus again on Psalm 68. God, your heavenly Father, is a father to the fatherless who delights in setting the lonely in families, his heavenly family. If you've experienced the reality of a loving earthly father, then thank the Lord for him. But if you didn't, then look instead to your heavenly father who loves you so much he sent his only begotten son to ransom you and pay the penalty for your sin so that you could spend eternity with him. The Apostle John expressed this truth in 1 John 3, verse 1, and again in chapter 4, verse 10. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. How important is the reality that God is indeed your heavenly Father? Well, in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus addressed God as Father 65 times. And in the Gospel of John, he uses the term an additional 100 times. Paul continues the theme, calling God our Father, by my count anyway, 41 times. James uses it three times, Peter four times, Jude once, and then John uses it an additional 19 times in his epistles and in the book of Revelation. Now that's a total of 233 times in the New Testament. But in the wokeism debate within society today, isn't referring to God as our Father something that should be replaced with a more gender-neutral term? The Church of England has formed a commission to study ways to do just that. But would referring to God as our mother be the same as referring to him as our Father? it definitely would not be the same. In the incarnation, Jesus did take on human flesh as a male. But God the Father is spirit. He doesn't exist in a physical body. So why did the Bible use imagery to describe God as Father? Likely because it presents him as our leader, protector, and guide. 
but while doing so in the context of a loving family. God is not the CEO and we're not employees. The use of the term father expresses leadership within a loving, intimate relationship. And that brings me back to this Father's Day weekend. Our earthly fathers are flawed individuals, just like we are. If your father is still alive, take time to thank him for the good things he's done for you over the years. If he's dead, think back to the characteristics he displayed that made a positive impact on your life. But what if he was an absent or abusive father? Then look beyond your earthly father to your heavenly father and thank him for being a father to the fatherless who has set you in a new heavenly family where he can show you his love and care. Let me try to practice what I just preached, so to speak. My father died in 2015. At his memorial service, I shared the characteristics about him, especially after he came to faith, that stood out to me. He was a man of his word. If he said he would do something, he would do it. He believed and followed the Bible. I actually used him as an illustration for my classes when I talked about how to apply the Bible to our lives. He was a man of prayer, and he prayed for a large number of people. He kept a prayer list on four by six cards that he updated frequently. He cared for others, which showed up in his passion to visit those in the hospital as well as shut-ins. He loved his family. He was faithful to my mom. He loved my brother and me and our spouses and our children. When I think of my dad, I picture that frown on his face as he would shake his head from side to side. I can hear the occasional amen from his pew in church. I can see him offering wintergreen lifesavers to kids who could quote Bible verses, and I see him sitting at the kitchen table studying the Bible. Dad taught me several key life lessons, the importance of honesty and integrity, the value of hard work, and the reality that success isn't what you have or what people think of you. It's measured by who you are and how well you live up to God's expectations for you. Sometime this weekend, make up a list like that of your earthly father. And sadly, if that's not possible, then make up a list for your heavenly father. Let him know how much you appreciate him for the impact he has made and continues to make on your life today. Thank you, Charlie. Boy, great stories about your dad there. Maybe as you're listening, you're wondering just how much your heavenly father loves you. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not die, but have eternal life. Do you have this eternal life, this assurance? You can have that right now. And we're glad to pray with you. Let me pray a prayer that would be appropriate for you, and I'll leave some space for you to pray along with us, all right? Lord God, thank you that you love me. Thank you that you're my father. I want to be your forgiven son. I want to be saved. Please forgive me for my wrongdoing. Please come into my life now. Be my savior from this day forward. And help me turn away from the mountain of junk that I've been living for to this point. Make me yours, Jesus. Amen. We would sure love to hear from you. If you've uh, prayed that prayer, you can email us at thelandandthebook at moody.edu. Happy Father's Day weekend from our host, Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. The Land and the Book is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.